Well, it's definitely a happy second birthday here at Compass HB. I'm so glad to be here with all of you. God has been so good to us as a church. And just in case uh, you can't make it to lunch today or in case we don't get to talk, I'll tell you right now what I'm so thankful for in year two of this church is that God brought Pastor Bill to be here. Anybody else thankful for Pastor Bill? I hear that smattering of applause. You are not as thankful as I am, I can tell you right now, all right? Uh, there was a point at the end of year one where it became pretty clear there were too many people here for one pastor, and so uh, I'm so glad that uh, God brought Bill here, and Bill is my brother. Uh, we were both born to Bruce and Roberta Blakey, and I want to just tell you in a moment of honesty here that I did not want to hire my brother here at this church because I thought people might accuse us of nepotism. Have you heard of nepotism before? Where you show favor to your relatives in the hiring of them. And so me and the, uh, the pastors who make up the board of our church, um, we decided purposefully to interview other people than Bill um, because we didn't want to be accused of nepotism. And as we interviewed these other guys, they were good guys. They were qualified to be pastors. And uh, as we interacted with them, I became 100% convinced that the person we needed to hire was Bill Blakey to be the pastor here at this church. And let me give you three reasons why we are guilty of nepotism here at Compass HP, all right? Because uh, now you can accuse us of it because, yeah, we hired him. He's my brother. But here's the reasons why. For three reasons, and these are not notes. You don't need to write them down, but I'm just going <laughs> to throw them up on the screen, all right? Uh, well, we come from the same father, and we're following our, our example of our dad. Our dad is a pastor in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and uh, he gave us a picture of what it looked like to be that kind of a man for God working at the church. And Bill has had the same experiences that I've had where dad says, hey, you're coming with me early to church. And uh, hey, you're staying with me after the service today. And basically what that means as a pastor's kid is you get volunteered for a setup and tear down. Uh, and that's just how it was. We have an example that we could follow. Another reason that it's been great to have Bill here is I know Bill. I realized as we were interviewing these other guys, how long would it take us to really know each other? As we work together here, as we serve together, Bill and I, we're on the same page doing the same thing from day one. But the main reason, the third reason that I really am glad God brought Bill to us is Bill has a very here-to-serve attitude. And I don't know if you've got to interact with him, but sometimes when I'm talking to pastors, unfortunately, you get the idea that there are things at the church that would be beneath them that they wouldn't want to do. I haven't met a thing yet that Pastor Bill isn't ready to dive in to do uh, to love the people here at this church. And so I am so thankful that God brought him. But then I also want to say that Bill is my brother. We have the same parents. But there are men here at this church who are not my physical brother, who are not even pastors here at this church that I could say those exact same things about. We have the same father, our father in heaven. And, and we are brothers in, in Christ. And I know these guys. I know them well. I don't think there's anything really hidden in their life. Uh, I think we speak very honestly with one another. And uh, I can tell you that there are many people, men and women here in this church, that are invested into this church, that serve this church just as much as I do as the pastor. They are brothers and sisters here in the ministry. And so that's what we want to talk about is not just our physical brothers and sisters, but our brothers and sisters in Christ. So grab your Bible and open it up to John chapter 13. 
And Jesus is now going to take our study of the Last Supper to the next level here as he addresses the now 11 uh, disciples. Judas has just left out into the darkness of night to betray Jesus. And so as soon as Judas leaves, it seems like Jesus kind of takes it up a notch as he addresses the 11 disciples. And there were physical brothers among those 11 disciples. There were Peter and Andrew, who we know were, were brothers. There were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So there were some physical brothers, but he addresses them all as one group, and he gives them a command that we could not have a better text for us going into our third year than the, what we're going to look at right now this morning. Read it with me. This is John 13, verses 31 to 35. This is page 900. If you got one of our books, please follow along as I read. It says, when he had gone out, that's Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the theme of the morning is very clear there. Jesus says it three times in those two verses that we here at this church, he commands us, starting with his original 11 disciples there, and now extended down to us, to love one another. This is the command of Christ. This is his expectation for his people. And so let's just break down the passage. Go back and look down at verse 31. And Jesus says, now's the time. Okay, Judas is leaving. He just left. He just walked out of the room. That's triggering the whole thing. He's going to go. He's going to go get that mob. And they're going to get their lanterns and their, their pitchforks. And they're going to come and try to arrest me, which means they're going to take me on trial where I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. And then I'm going to be taken away. And I'm going to be crucified on a cross. It's all going to happen within the next 24 hours. And Judas leaving, that's like the thing that kickstarts all that's about to take place. And so he like gets this sense of urgency. Now's it, guys. Now I'm going to be glorified. Now Jesus has a very interesting definition of glorified. He says he's going to be glorified, which is going to glorify the Father. And then when the Father's glorified, he's going to glorify the Son. So he's like, we're going to start an endless cycle here of glorification. But what Jesus means by glorification might be a little different than what we naturally think. Go back to chapter 12. And look at how Jesus defined being glorified. Just a page over, John 12, verse 23. He brought this up here in John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them, and he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? The Son of Man is a way Jesus liked to refer to himself. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 comes riding on the clouds. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Being glorified as the King of kings and Lord of lords and riding on the clouds so everyone can see him? Well, no. Look what he says, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he's talking about he's going to be glorified, but the way he's going to get to glorification is through his crucifixion. It's through his death on the cross. In fact, he says that's true for us too. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So the way you get to glorification is through suffering, according to Jesus Christ. As you serve, you get exalted. So when Jesus says here, going back now to chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, when he says, this is it, guys, now I'm going to be glorified, what he's talking about is now's the time for me to suffer and die. After that, there will be glorification, but this is the way you get to glory. If you want to have eternal life with God in heaven forever, well, you've got to lose your life. You've got to give your life away here in this world. And then he starts to explain to these disciples that there's going to be a, a separation. Look at verse 33. Little children, and that's a very interesting way that he addresses them. That's kind of the theme of our sermon. Little children, he calls these 11 disciples. Yet a little while I am with you. And you will seek me, and just like I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So he starts to tell them, hey, for three years you guys have been following me around. Well, now, in a little while, you're not going to be able to follow me like that anymore. There's going to be a separation between us. I'm going somewhere as I die and rise again and go up to be with the Father. I'm go we're going to be separated. I'm going somewhere, and right now is not the time for you to come. Now he says, he already said that to the Jews in John chapter 8. He said, hey, I'm going to disappear and you guys are going to look for me and you're not going to find me and you're going to die in your sins because you, unless you believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sins. So that's how he said it to the Jews. Like they're never going to see him again because he's going to go up to be with the Father and they don't believe in him, so they're not going to be with the Father. But he says it in a different way to his disciples. In fact, look at chapter 14, verse 1. Look, this is a preview of where we're going next week when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus encourages his disciples. Hey, for a little while, we're going to be separated, but don't worry, I'm going to go. You believe me, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come and get you, and you're going to be with me. So if you come back next week, we're going to study that, and we're going to heaven next week here at this church. But, but, but he says, in this interim time, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Eventually, I'll come and get you, and I'll take you to be with heaven. Well, in the in-between, all right? And while we're separated, a new commandment I give to you. And then three times in two verses, he says, here's what I want you guys to do while I'm gone. I want you to love one another. So let's put that up on the screen here. We got verses 34 and 35. Three different times, it's clear, the emphasis for this morning, love one another. 
But yet each time he says to love one another, he gives us a different motivation, a different reason why we should love one another. Okay, let's, let's break it down. First, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. So if you've got a handout, uh, let's take some notes here. You can open it up. You can see you've got the text right up there on the side. Well, right next to verse 34, let's put edict. That's the first word I want you to write down. Because that was a word that made me kind of think of, what, what is a commandment? An edict sounds really formal to me. It sounds like some kind of royal decree. It sounds like the king has, thus saith the king, hereby, so forth, forevermore, we will do this. Well, here, it's a command. You are commanded by Jesus here this morning to love one another. And we need to feel the seriousness of what it means to be commanded all right. I think in our casual culture here in Orange County, even our kind of casual Christianity that we have today, commandments often come across like suggestions. Commandments often come across like guidelines. Maybe it'll help you out if you do it. Or I think some people even look at the commands as like, you know, that's kind of like the AP level Christianity. Here, here, here's here's kind of how we normally live. And then there's honors level, right? And so I guess loving one another would get me like some bonus points, I guess, maybe in heaven, or maybe that's extra credit if I, no, this is a command. This is what's expected, okay? This is not optional. No, this presents you two options. You either obey the command or you disobey the command. You either do what Jesus tells you to do or you don't do it. That's how, it's, that's how it should come across to us. And if Jesus is my Lord, if Jesus is the one that I worship and believe in to be God, and he has authority over my life, Jesus gets to call the shots. If he tells me to love one another, guess what I have to do? I got to love one another. And in fact, if I realize by studying what it means to love a one another today that I'm not loving one another, well, see, then I'm presented with a very real choice in my life. Am I going to change my life to obey the command of Jesus, or am I going to keep living the way that makes sense to me? Who really calls the shots in your life? Is it you or is it Jesus Christ? Well, he's going to say, here's a command that you love one another. And, it, and it's interesting to me that he says it's a new commandment because the command to love is actually a very old commandment. In, in fact, it goes all the way back to the original book of love in the Bible. Do you know the original book of love in the Bible? Leviticus is the original book of love, okay? You're like, what? I didn't think Leviticus was about love. Well, look, here's Leviticus 19, verse 18. Let's throw it up on the screen. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then with authority, I am the Lord. So I, I don't know if you've ever read Leviticus before. Many have started out in a noble attempt to read Leviticus. Not as many have made it all the way through. It gets a little meticulous there as they start talking about all these sacrifices and offerings and all these different laws that you're supposed to make sure you do. If you're going to offer a sacrifice to God, well, you better do it just in the way that he says because you need to be holy as he is holy. That's what Leviticus is all about. And so there's this idea that maybe we've kind of lost in our culture in general that when God says to do something, there's a seriousness, there's a weight, there's a burden. That's a command, and I better do it. 
And it says here, you better love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, really, here in Leviticus, we have the origin of the golden rule to treat others as you want to be treated. How would you want people to love you? How do you love yourself? Now consider other people. How do you treat them? Do you treat them in that loving way? That's really what it's talking about here. And you better do it because I am the Lord. So it's an old commandment, it seems to me. So then why does Jesus call it a new commandment? Let's go back to our text. Look at the next phrase. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Oh, okay. So here's what takes an old commandment and puts it in a new light and makes it new is now we have, second thing to write down, now we have the example of Jesus, okay? So before, it was kind of this system of, I guess I think how I want to be treated. How would I treat myself? And then I kind of love other people, and I consider them as more important than myself. Well, now there's an even better template than looking at yourself. Now you can look to, how did Jesus love you? Okay? And just as Jesus loved you, now you go and love one another. So now we have an example. And it's an example we're pretty excited about. I mean, we're making T-shirts about it. I mean, people are wearing the T-shirts out in public that say, Jesus loves me. Have you, have you seen this, right? You get some, let me just tell you from personal experience, you get some interesting looks from people when, you, when you're wearing your Jesus loves me T-shirt. I mean, that's something I want everybody to know here at this church, that the Bible is very clear that Jesus laid down his life for you. Look at John chapter 13. Go back to verse 1. Before John tells us anything about the Last Supper with Jesus, he tells us Jesus loves us. This is how John even thought of himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Look at John 13 verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come, here it is, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the, what does it say there? To the, oh man, he was all in. I mean, specifically, it says he loved his own. That yes, when Jesus died, the uh, the offer of forgiveness and eternal life is available to all, but Jesus knew he was dying for you. It was personal when he died on the cross. And he did it to the end. I mean, you can look at that to the end multiple ways. You can see what started here at this dinner, the betrayal that led to all of the physical pain and all of the suffering on the cross and the wrath of God being poured out him. Like he endured it all the way to the end. Never once did he complain. Never once did he open his mouth in protest. No, he took all of the pain and suffering and he endured it all the way till he died and he did it for you. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is the wrath of God was poured out on the sun. The one moment in all of eternity when there was a rift in the perfect fellowship between the father and the son, when the father treated Jesus like you deserve to be treated because of your sin. I mean, the Bible teaches that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us have sinned and the wages of sin is death and that we're going to be judged according to what we have done in our sin. But instead of me getting judged, instead of you getting judged, God took the judgment that was, had our name on it and he poured it out in full on Jesus Christ. And he took the wrath for you. And he cried out right before he died, it is finished because he paid in full the punishment for your sin. This is how Jesus loved you. This is the example. I mean, an example that's ready to forgive you no matter what you've done. 
An example that, that fully welcomes you into relationship and says, hey, I will be with you wherever you go. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No, the way that Jesus loved you. Think about it. How did Jesus love you? Yeah, now that you got it in your mind, go and love one another that same way. I mean, that's powerful. We all love the fact that Jesus loves us as Christians. There's an example for us. We can even look at specific places in the Bible where it describes how Jesus loves us. Well, then it says, that's something meant to be passed on. And if you know the love of Jesus, let's just make it very clear. You will pass on the love of Jesus. This is not something good Christians do. This is something that Christians do. Everyone who is loved by Jesus passes that love on to this group called the one another's. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 35, this is how people will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. If there is love for one another, then that proves you are one of my disciples. Let's write down another word next to verse 35. Evidence. Our love for one another is our evidence that we have then been loved by Jesus Christ. The proof, so to say, is in the pudding. You can call yourself whatever you would like to call yourself. If you want to call yourself a Christian, there are many people in America who call themselves Christians. Even to this day, where we're at right now, in the election of, uh, of Hillary and, and, and Donald Trump, I mean, there are people all over America who will claim to be Christians. Right now, 2016, have you talked to these guys? Hey, you're a Christian. Great. I get, ex personally, I don't know what it is. I get excited when I meet people who are Christians, right? I'm like, yes. I think sometimes I come on a little too strong, right? Yeah. You're a Christian. Awesome. And I say stuff like, where do you go to church? And I get this response regularly. I'm not saying this to make fun of people. This is just reporting the facts of how the conversation goes in Huntington Beach. I get this response all of the time. Oh, yeah, um, it's that one over there. Uh, it's off of Warner. Oh, man, what is the name? Hey, honey, what is the name of our church? I mean, have you had that conversation? You're laughing because you know it's true, right? I mean, I've had that with so many people. We're Christians. Oh, yeah. Can't even name the church we go to. Sometimes when people are like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'll be like, praise the Lord. When did you repent of your sin? And they look at me like, what did you just ask me? Like I'm speaking some kind of foreign tongue or something. This repenting of sin stuff, what, what is that about? See, we got a lot of people claiming they're Christians. And then you meet one of the hardcore Christians, right? And you're like, hey, are you a Christian? They're like, no, I'm a disciple. You met one of those guys? They're like, I won't even use the word Christian because anybody can claim that. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? And their voice, like, gets intense just to let you know. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a, hey, you can call yourself whatever you want. Here's how we're going to know. You can say whatever you want to say. Here's how we're going to know. Do you love other people? Do you love the one and others as Jesus commanded you? Then we know you're one of his people or not. See, we see it. This is the thing about Christianity. Everybody wants to have their, their private faith where it's up to you whether you believe it in, G, in Jesus or not, but it, the faith is not private, see? Because when you believe in Jesus, when you know the love Jesus has for you, we are gonna see you love other people. That's what he's saying. And he's commanding it, and he's shown it, and he's expecting to see it as the evidence. This is how people are gonna know. 
And I mean, let's go ask. Let's go interview people who are not Christians, who would not claim to be Christians, people who don't go to church, and let's ask them, why don't they go to church? And they're going to tell us it's because of the hypocrisy. It's because of the self-righteous judgment. It's because they went to a church maybe one time, and they were not loved. Hey, if we're going to be a church, two years going into year number three, there is one thing we had better get right here at Compass HB. We had better love one another. Like, this is not in any way something that we can miss. Or, or the Lord should just shut this church down if we're not going to love one another here. If we invite people to come here and we preach to them the truth of God's word and they hear the truth, but they do not see the love of Jesus Christ in the way that we treat one another, then we are misrepresenting God to the people of Huntington Beach. Because God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus shows us the grace and truth. If we want them to know we're with Jesus, then they better be able to see our love. And specifically, it says our love for one another. Now, who are these one another's? Who are we talking about here when we keep saying this, this Greek word that we translate into English, one another? And when you start searching the New Testament for this idea of one another, it's all over the New Testament, all over the second half of our book here. Does it talk about we're supposed to greet one another? We're, it even talks about like greet one another with a holy kiss. Have you read, have you read those passages? It talks about encouraging one another. It talks about washing one another's feet, bearing one another burdens, confessing our sins to one another. Pray, I mean, these commands about one another, praying for one another, they're throughout the New Testament. So who are these people? See, when I was uh, growing up uh, in, in the household of, of Bruce and Roberta, I was the, the first child, the oldest child, the masculine child carrying on the Blakey name to the next generation. Any other oldest kids here? That, yes, look at us. This is the best and the brightest that we have to offer. That's how we feel about ourselves, us oldest, right? And what was interesting at my house, maybe you got gypped in the same way, is that my dad and mom did not come and consult with me and I was not taken into the deal team on whether or not there would be other children in our family. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, there he was. Bill showed up, and then there was this other guy, Ben. And I had no choice but to love them as my brothers. See, as I was born into my family, I was given siblings against my will, whether I liked it or not. And I had to learn how to love them. Same exact thing happens when you are saved by Jesus Christ. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3 that every single person has to be born again. And when you are born again, and when the Spirit now indwells you, you enter into a relationship with God who we can refer to, even though he is holy and transcendent in heaven above, we can refer to him as our Father is what he says because of how he loves us. And when you have a personal relationship with your Father in heaven, one thing you need to understand is you are not an only child. Your personal relationship with your Father puts you into relationship with all these one another. So let's get that down. That is the point of our sermon. Point number one, the only point today, you are not an only child, okay? You have a relationship with the Father well, then that means that you are put into relationships with all of his other children, okay? This is a way that we can talk about salvation. Sometimes we refer to salvation as adoption, or we get brought into the, the family 
of God. In fact, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Everybody, please grab your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 12, page 944. If you got one of our books, let's talk about salvation. And that's something I'm praying even today as we begin our our third year, as we have this barbecue after church, I'm praying that we'll even see God save somebody at our church here today, that he will take them and make them a part of his family, that he will make them one of his kids. And this is something we like to talk about. We like to talk about how God is our father. We like to talk about that we're sons and daughters of the one true king. You heard Christians talk about that? Well, if you're sons or daughters, if we're children of the father, there's a lot of spiritual siblings that come along with that. We don't have a choice about the matter. No, we're commanded to love these one another's. In the same way that you think about your physical brothers and sisters in your family, you, that's the one another's, the people that you end up in relationship with here at church. Look at how it describes our salvation in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. In fact, look what it calls us right away. It says, so then, what word does it say there? So then what? Brothers. Do you know that in the New Testament, more than it refers to us as Christians, more than it refers to us as disciples, over 500 times in the New Testament, it refers to us as Christians brothers, or maybe the way we would say it today is brothers and sisters. That's how it refers to us. Over, write that down, over 500 times in the New Testament, we are defined as brothers, as siblings, as one another's, more than even it talks about us in relationship to God by the way that it calls us. It doesn't call us little Christ Christians or disciples as much as it calls us in the relationship that we have with one another, brothers. And so it's, hey, brothers, here's a way to think about your salvation. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We can't keep living in our sin according to our natural, selfish ways. No, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, here we go, being born again, a new life, the Spirit now, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. No, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here's an amazing thing that has happened. Now I can call God my dad. That's how close, how real of a relationship that I get to have with him when I'm adopted as one of his sons or one of his daughters. Verse 16, and the Spirit is going to let us know. He's going to give us assurance, confidence, blessed blessed assurance. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we really are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs. Then we're going to receive the inheritance. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we go along with Christ, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Just like we saw in John 12, Jesus is going to be glorified by suffering. Well, we are co-heirs with Christ as we suffer and later on we'll be glorified with him. And what does it call us? The same thing Jesus says to his 11 disciples that night, little children, children in the plural. As in there are many of us, the one another's. 
So who are your one another's? I'm asking you right now. There's a command on the table in the book this morning. Jesus talking to you, saying to you, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another just as I have loved you, to love one another. In fact, this shows where you're really at if you love one another. So who are the people that you are being called by Jesus to love? I'm, I'm not, it's going to be different for everybody here. And I'm not talking about your physical family. I hope that you love your physical family, but I am asking you, who in your spiritual family do you love? In fact, let's even flip it like this. Who at this church would claim you that you love them? They would claim you as a brother or a sister in Christ because of the love that you have shown to them. There's a command that Jesus is expecting us to do. Are you doing it? Who are you loving? This is something we've got to really ask ourselves. Am I doing what Jesus tells me to do when he says to love one another? If I can't even start out by identifying one another's in my life, then how can I claim to be loving them if I don't even know the people at this church well enough to, to write their names down and claim them as people that are my one another's? So what I've done here is I've broken down three different steps that I think we're going to need to take to obey the command to love one another. Three, three sub-points that we have here, okay? Practical steps to help you maybe change your life if you want to obey the command of Jesus to love one another if you're not doing it already. And I'm here to tell you what's amazing to me is how many people are obeying this command to love one another here at this church. And we've only been around two years, and yet people already feel like family here at this church. It, it is exciting to me to see. These last two years have been the longest two years of my life, planning this church, right? They've been like dog years. You know how, that, you know how you, like dogs are having seven years when we're having one? That's how it feels to me, all right? Not because it's been bad, but because I have met so many different people over these two years. And I feel like we've gotten to know each other. I've seen Jesus change people's lives. I've seen people struggle. And I've seen us come together and start to get each other's back and start to really love one another. It's powerful to see the way that this is happening. So I believe that there are people who do love one another here at this church. In fact, last Sunday, we had over 700 souls who attended this church on, on Sunday morning. I'm here to tell you that 67% of those people people, 478 different people showed up at one of our small groups during the week. So two out of three people here at this church don't just come to the service on Sunday, but they gather together with the one and others during the week to love them. That is very exciting to me. That after two years, we've got two out of three people who are at least starting to get into these groups to get to know each other and to try to love each other. But I would love to see us get to 100% of the people at this church obeying the command of Jesus to love one another. So let me just break it down into three steps. And in each step, I want to start with how did Jesus love us? Because that's what we're supposed to do for one another. I'm not trying to get you to sign up for some church program. I'm not trying to force you to do something against your will. If you don't know the love of Jesus, I'm not expecting you to then to pass on that love to other people. But if you do know the love of Jesus, Jesus said that he is your good shepherd. Do you remember when he said that in John 10? 
As we were studying through the Gospel of John, that's maybe one of the things that hit me that I took the most personally in our study, that he is my shepherd, that I'm one of his sheep who had gone astray on my own way, and Jesus came and he oversees like a shepherd would for a sheep. He oversees my life. And it says in John 10, 3, the first thing that Jesus does for his sheep is he calls them by name. And he says, my sheep, I know them and they know me. They hear my voice and they follow me. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Let me show you the, the first step we're going to need to take towards loving one another, to follow the way that Jesus loved us. We see it here as a command in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. This is page 1016. Please look at this with me. We're breaking down the command to love one another, the big idea, into three steps um, and the first step, I think, is right here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, that's a great attention-getting statement right there, okay? The end is here, right? The telos has come is a way to say it. It, it. Here we go. You got 24 hours before Jesus returns. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, what are you going to do in your last 24 hours? Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, if there's one thing you should do, if this is the end of the world as we know it, here's the one thing to do. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly from the heart with a sincere passion. Hey, this is the end of the world as we know it. Well, let's make sure we love one another. And then it says this, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we better make sure we're loving one another. And here's a specific way, your hospitality to one another. Our first dash, let's get this down. We need to practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. Hospitality, at least to me, is a word whose definition has been hijacked in my mind because I grew up going to church, and we have a way of making a secret code language here at church. And, and when I hear hospitality, I start getting hungry. I don't know if anybody else feels the same way. But I cannot now hear the word hospitality without thinking about food or really, I've even heard say, well, that lady's got good hospitality. I've heard that said about women at church and what they meant was she has a clean house. Anybody ever heard that before, right? It's like hospitality. The idea is like you offer people food, you invite them over to your house. Here's what hospitality really means. It means to love strangers, if you could write that down, to love strangers. That's what hospitality means. Okay, now maybe you might offer a stranger something to eat, and maybe you might invite them over into your house. But the word there in the Greek is philoxenos, okay? And, and philo is short for the idea of Philadelphia, and Philadelphia, we know, is the city of brotherly love. So philo, I'm going to have a brotherly love, uh, but xenos means stranger. That's what xenos means. So I don't know you. You, we're unfamiliar, we're unacquainted, but I come and I approach you like we're brothers. I approach you in a familial kind of way. I, I approach you like we're going to get to know each other, like we're in it for the, like this isn't just a random encounter, but we're going to start a relationship right now, and I approach you with, with intention. I take the initiative. 
Maybe I even try to learn your name, and I try to learn your name in such a way that when I see you again, because I'm hoping to see you again, and when I do see you again, I know who you are. I call you by name. Now, is the conviction burning in anybody's heart right now? Because everybody right away says, well, I'm not good with names. Have you heard yourself say that before? I haven't met really somebody who's like, oh, I get names down the first time. I certainly don't, right? But I have learned over time that when you call someone by their name, it is a way that you show them that you care about them. And they're not just some person. No, they're an individual. They're someone you're trying to get to know. Even though we might feel strange to each other right now, we're going to start treating each other like family. Is this how we approach people here at church? Is there hospitality happening here at this church? Somebody said something interesting about our church. They said that you can't be invisible at that church. They said you, and I thought it was a great compliment that they were, they were paying us, even though I think they meant it in a negative way. What they meant was you can't get in and out of that church without somebody talking to you. Well, I sure hope not. I sure hope that nobody comes into this building without experiencing in some way a tangible expression of, hey, we're strangers, but I want to get to know you. I want to treat you like a brother or sister. I don't want to be the selfish, greedy kid that walks out of church asking myself, what did I get out of church today, right? I mean, that's like the kid. Have you heard about it sometimes when you're the older sibling? Maybe this happened to you, where uh, they brought home your younger brother or sister from the hospital, and at first you were very resistant towards your sibling. Maybe some of you have never gotten over this. You were very resistant because now the attention went away from you, and it went to somebody else. Now all of the toys at your house you couldn't say are mine. Now you had to learn how to share, right? But it is amazing to me how people come into church And they walk out of church, and there are so many people. Every time you go to church, it is noticeable how there are other people there, and yet our criteria in evaluating church is what did I think about what it did for me. That is not the love of Jesus Christ. No, if we, don't, if we can come to a gathering in the name of Jesus without even greeting, without even welcoming, without even interacting with other people in the pursuit of getting to know them, then I think that's a misrepresentation of Christ. I mean, Christ took the end. Aren't you glad that Christ didn't just sit back with his arms crossed waiting for you to make the first move in your relationship with him? Aren't you glad? glad that Christ came all the way to you and called you by name and said, hey, you, follow me? Because if Christ was waiting for us to make the first move, he'd still be waiting today. Anybody want to say amen to that right now? But you see people, when they come to church, they have that kind of arms crossed, and they're looking, okay, who's going to come to me? And when someone comes to me, I will deem them acceptable, and I will begin my interactions with them. But these other people who kind of gave me a a look but didn't talk to me, I'm suspicious of those evil people here at church. Why are we thinking like that? Why are we not thinking, wow, there's lunch today. There's a free lunch. And I'm going to go to that lunch. I'm going to find somebody I don't know. And I'm going to treat them like we're future brothers or sisters as we get to know each other here at this church. Like we're starting a relationship today that could last for the rest of our lives. That's how Jesus loved you. And are we here to love each other like that? 
Is hospitality a dead art or is it alive here at at Compass HB? It says, hey, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This isn't a chore. Oh, I got to go meet new people at church. No, that's what we're here to do is to welcome people in in the name of Jesus Christ. So the first step is we're just going to have to get to know one another. We can't love people that we don't know, that we don't start to engage in interaction with. Now go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let's look at the next level of what it's going to take to love people. Everybody turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. It's just a few pages over to the left. It's on page 1007, if you got one of our books. Now, when we go back to this idea of how did Jesus love me, well, Jesus is the good shepherd. That's how he refers to himself. And I can't think of Jesus being the good shepherd in John 10 without thinking about maybe the most famous psalm of all of them, Psalm 23, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And when, when he's my shepherd, it's like we have this ongoing relationship. See, and what the shepherd does is he makes me lie down by, by, by still waters, right? He brings me to these, he leads me into these green pastures. It says, even if I were to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are what? You're with me. See, there's, so there's not just that he calls my name and asks me to follow him. No, he's, he's with me. He's like right there next to me. In fact, the psalm ends, Psalm 23, verse 6, surely, here's something we can count on, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, how long? Forever, it says. So once I get initiated into this relationship, see, then there's this side-by-side, there's this togetherness, there's this companionship that then happens. Look at how Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 puts it. And hopefully these are familiar words. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another. There's this one another phrase again. We got to consider how to stir up one another, or maybe you've heard it said, spur one another on to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but here it is, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Day with a capital D there. That's referring to the day of the Lord. That's talking about a time of judgment and tribulation when Jesus returns. That's saying the end of all things is at hand. Here's the theme again. Hey, if the end's coming, if you've got 24 to 48 hours left before the world ends as we know it, what are you going to do? Well, here it says we should be encouraging one another all the more. I remember one time I was running a a small group for high school boys, uh, freshmen in high school. Now, if you've never spent a lot of time with freshmen in high school, I could say this because they're in the room down the hall. They lack a certain maturity. Anybody uh, know what I'm talking about? And so I asked them one day, uh, I said, hey, you got 24 hours to live. What are you going to do with your last 24 hours on planet Earth? And this guy shoots his hand up in the air right away. And I'm like, you, sir, wow, you seem like you know right away what you would do with your last 24 hours. What is it? He's like, I would go to Disneyland, and I would spend the whole time at Disneyland, and I would hide there, and I would stay there all night long, and they wouldn't find me, and they wouldn't even be able to get me out. I'd just stay at Disneyland the whole time. I was like, oh, not really what I was expecting. Okay. And then this other guy says, no, that's not what I would do. 
I'd get a sign and I'd write on it, the end is near. And I'd start walking down the middle of the road. And I was like, you got 24 hours left and you want to turn into crazy sign guy? Really? That's how you want to go out? I was, guys, look at this passage. Look at 1 Peter 4. Look at Hebrews 10. Hey, if this is the end, here's what I want to do. I want to come to this small group. And I want to sit here, and I want to look each other in the eyes. I want to get face-to-face. I want to get side-by-side. And I want to say to each one of you, hey, are you ready to meet Jesus right now? And let's get ready. Let's be in this together. Let's go all the way to the end. Let's love one another to the end, just like Jesus loved us. And let's make sure that everybody here in this group, all of my one another, let's make sure we're ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I got 24 hours left, I'm coming to this church, and I'm looking for my brothers and sisters, and we're going to be ready to welcome Jesus Christ. We're going to be ready to see him, see. And it says, unfortunately, this is a lot of people's story. They go to church for a while, and then they stop going. They check it out, and and then they kind of drop off. No, it says, don't neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some. A lot of people start out with good intentions at church, and then maybe somebody mistreats them at church, or maybe it just doesn't really work out with their schedule, and other things kind of turn them away, and they stop going to church. And so this is kind of the classic proof text, Hebrews 10.25, that people throw out like hey you need to go to church Hebrews 10 25 says so I don't think this verse is really talking about going to church I mean not what we're doing right now not our Sunday morning service see right now right here all of the chairs are our face forward and when we come here and we gather together we come here to worship God that's what we're, we're here every Sunday morning so that you can have a personal interaction with your Father in heaven. And so we have these songs, and sometimes we read scripture designed that in our hearts we would respond with, to, with, to God with worship. And then we open up God's word and we let God speak to us. It's, we're not here to hear what I have to say. No, we're here to hear what Jesus is teaching his disciples at the Last Supper. And we believe that whatever God says has authority over our lives. We're here to hear straight from God to us. This is you interacting with your Father in heaven. That's what we're doing here. But this verse is telling us to encourage one another. And the word here, get this down for our second dash. The word here is parakaleo. That's the Greek word. You could write it down in English if you want. But this word is going to be so important for us as we study the Last Supper that I want to teach everybody this Greek word, parakaleo. And what the idea is, is it means to come alongside, or if you want to write down the definition, to call alongside. That's really what parakaleo means. It means that, hey, we don't just sit with our chairs facing forward here to worship God. No, we need to get with our chairs face to face. We need to sit right next to each other. We need to come alongside, not just even with our physical presence sitting next to each other, but we need to call alongside. We need to know each other so well that we can speak into each other's lives. That's what it's talking about here. The way this church is going to grow, the way we're going to build this church, the way people are going to grow in their own relationship with God is as we speak the truth in one, in love, speak the truth in love to one another. That's Ephesians chapter four describes. That's how the church grows. We call alongside one another. 
And even if I'm not in your physical presence, I might call you, I might write you an email, I might send you a text, I might even write you a handwritten note as I try to speak encouragement and truth into your life to build you up. In fact, even when we're not together, it says in verse 24, I'm considering you, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you. And I'm trying to think about my brother or my sister. How could I spur them on? How could I get them going to love Jesus more and to do good deeds for Jesus? Like, how can I help them stoke the fire in their heart for Jesus Christ? So I want to be like a, like a spur where I give that little swift kick of love that gives them that extra giddy-up, that gets them going in their love for Jesus Christ. How could I make a difference in the life of somebody else here at this church? That's what we're supposed to be thinking about. And when we come here on Sunday, we might see one another. We might talk with one another. I hope we extend a hand to get to know one another. But this time is not focused on our one another relationships. This time is focused on our Father in heaven. That's why we need to gather, I believe, another time where we're focused on one another. That's why we have these fellowship groups. That's why I plead with you and I say, if I'm your pastor, if this is your church, then I'm asking you to go to one of these fellowship groups to make it a priority, to get to know people that you could then say, you're side by side sharing life together. That's what it's saying to do in Hebrews 10.25. When you see the word encourage in the New Testament, it's probably parakaleo, to call alongside of someone. Who are you side by side with? You got to get to know them. And you realize where they work and how their kids are. And you start to see who they are. And then you start to know how God could use you to speak into their life, to encourage them and build them up. Now, if you've done these first two steps at church before, you know that this doesn't always work out in a, in a happily ever after kind of a way. Now, a lot of people have been burned. In fact, a lot of people come into church very guarded. Their walls are up. Their heart has kind of been hardened because they did try to love people. They did get to know people at church before, and then those people kind of stabbed them in the back. Maybe they were honest and open about some sin in their life, and then they felt like some people really judged them for their sin. And so now they're real hesitant about opening themselves up or even getting to the point where they would say they, they love other people. Well, how did Jesus love you? The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. I mean, he gave himself. What did Jesus get out of it? What did Jesus get in the uh, salvation equation between you and Jesus? He brought his perfect righteousness by shedding his blood, and you brought your sin. See, Jesus isn't loving you for what he's going to get out of it in the end. Now, he's sacrificially giving of himself to you. We're not here to love people because we think that's going to be in our best interest. We're here to love people even if we know it's going to hurt us and break our hearts. We're still here to show the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus has laid down his life. He has shed his blood for many people who then respond by walking over his blood on their way to more sin. And yet he laid down his life, and the offer is there for all. We need to love all that Jesus brings across our path, and we need to love them even if they're not going to love us back. Go to Matthew 18, and look at how Jesus now takes the shepherd analogy that he has for us, and he applies it directly to us here in Matthew chapter 18. Look at this in verse 10 with me. 
Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. Jesus, this is page 823, if you got one of our books. Jesus puts it like this. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Make sure you're not looking down on anybody here at church. One of these little kids, one of these little children. Here's somebody over here, and you think they're going off into sin, and they stop showing up at your fellowship group. You don't see them around church anymore, and you might say things that I've heard people at church say before, like, well, they know where, where we are if they really want to be a part of us. Well, they know what time we meet if they really want to come. You start looking down on people like that. Jesus says, hey, make sure you don't look down on anybody. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I wouldn't want to be writing off somebody that the Father in heaven is sending angels after to protect. I wouldn't want to be giving up on somebody that the Father in heaven is calling one of his kids. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly... I say to you, he rejoices over it, over that one lost sheep, more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And one third thing, third dash here, we have to pursue the lost sheep, okay? We're not here to just get to know people and to love people who love us back. No, we're here to love people even if we see them start to drift away. It's heartbreaking. When you invest, when you put yourself out there and it feels awkward and uncomfortable, but you go for it, you practice hospitality, you take initiative, you get to know somebody, you start going to a group together, you start to become friends, you go to their house, they come to your house, you let each other in, and then all of a sudden you see them and they're not coming to church before. Have you had this experience before? And it's not even like they're not coming to our church. It's like they're not going to church. In fact, they're drifting away from Jesus Christ. They're starting to go back to to their old life, they're starting to say that like things like they want out of their marriage or, or things like they know are clearly wrong that you've even had specific conversations about before where they agreed with you that it was wrong and they said they wanted to repent of it and then the next thing you know, they're going back and doing it again. And your heart breaks. Are you, re- are you just going to write them off? You're going to give up on them? Or do you go after them? Here's what Jesus says with no analogy in verse 15. Look at Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, they do some sin in their life, and you know about it, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained, you have won your brother. It's saying you are the first line of defense here at this church. If you know somebody, And you can tell they are turning away from Jesus into sin. Don't come and tell me about it as the pastor, please. Don't go to your group and say, hey, let's all pray for so-and-so because look at what they're doing. No, the first thing that you do when you know somebody's in sin is you go straight to them. And between the two of you, privately there, brother to brother, sister to sister, you don't try to win the argument. You're not trying to prove to them they're wrong. You're trying to win them. You're trying to show them your love for them, that you care that they turn around from that sin and that they follow Jesus Christ with you again. You go and you bear your soul to them and you try to win them back. 
Right now, you get a message today that your brother is making a decision that you know is wrong. Your sister is ready to leave her family or or do something completely immoral. Are you going to get on the phone and talk to your brother or sister today? If they lived close enough, would you get into a car and drive over to their house and knock on the door until they answered and said, we got to talk about what you're doing? That's how we're supposed to treat one another here at the church. Like, I'm so invested in this person that if they go down, I'm going to go down with them. I'm going to cry. My heart's going to break. Like, if they turn away from Jesus, it will hurt me. And that's when you know that you really love them, see? That you care enough about somebody else that their spiritual condition determines whether you're having a good day or a bad day. Not how you feel, but how someone else is. See, Jesus loved us by dying for us, and he died for our what? Our sins. How can we say that we love one another if all we do is get to know each other, and we exchange the typical chit-chat, but we never talk about each other's sins? Do we really then love each other like Jesus loved us? See, we want this to be a church where you can be known where there is no secret that you have, and yet people will not judge you for your sin. They will love you for your sin in the same way that Jesus loved them. And we can talk about this openly, and we care enough about somebody that when we can tell they are in sin, we will love them enough to bring it up and to interact with them. Do you pursue lost Sheep. These are the steps it's going to take. We're going to have to get to know people. We're going to have to get side by side. And even if the relationship breaks down, we're going to go after them. Like Jesus went after lost sheep like us. I hope that it can be said at Compass Bible Church, Huntington Beach, that we love one another. It must be said about us. And let's just make this real clear. As we go into our third year, all right. I'm sure God in our third year is going to call some of us to other places and other churches, but I want to make this very clear personally from me to you. I am not going anywhere else but this church right here in Huntington Beach. I don't want to be a pastor who preaches sermons. I want to be your pastor, and I want to study the Bible together. If another church calls me tomorrow, And they say, hey, we've been learning about your church in Huntington Beach, and we think you should come be a pastor over here at such and such church in such and such place. And we've got something at our church that we know you don't have there in Huntington Beach. We've got parking spaces. (laughs) We've got this spacious, empty parking lot. So you should come be a pastor over here. And we've got, actually, we know we have more money in the bank than your church does there in Huntington Beach. And right next to this nice building we have, there's a parsonage where fully furnished where you could move in and you could live for free there as the pastor. Look, I'm not going anywhere else. Right away, I would not have to think about it. I would have to not have to pray about it. I would tell them no right away. Because you know what they don't have at this other green, grass is greener on the other side, church, they don't have you, see. They don't have you. See, Compass Bible Church, Huntington Beach is not a building. It's not an institution. It's not a service you go to on Sunday. You are Compass Bible Church, Huntington Beach. And I love you. I am here for no other reason than you, because you are the one and others that God has given me. You are my brothers and sisters 
in Christ. And that means something to me. That is why I'm ready to see what God is going to do in year three here among us at this family that we call Compass HB. God, I pray uh, for our church, God, that this would be true of us, that we could honestly say from our hearts that we love one another here at this church. And God, we thank you so much for the love that you have poured out through your son, Jesus Christ, that we can know here today that Jesus really does love us. And that in Jesus, there is no condemnation. He has taken the wrath for our sin, that we're adopted into your family. And that your spirit confirms within us that we are your sons and we are your daughters and you are our father in heaven and we cry out to you as our father right now, God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the relationship that we have with you. And God, open our eyes to see how that puts us into relationship with one another here at this church. That if you're our father, then we're all the brothers and sisters here. And God, I just want to thank you for the love that you have put on our hearts in just two short years. And God, I pray that that love would increase even more and grow in this third year of our church, that we would get to know each other even more, that we would be right side by side with each other. And God, I just pray for the people who are hearing this sermon right now, and they know they've never really loved people, maybe their family like this, but not people maybe outside of, the, uh, of their family, not in the church, not people they didn't grow up with, just people they go to church with. God, I pray that, that out of obedience to Jesus Christ, because Jesus has loved them, that they would enter into the family of love that you're building here among us, God. That they would take a step today just to try to get to know somebody that they would maybe come to a fellowship group as a step of obedience and faith. And God, I, I, my heart goes out even as we see so many people coming here to the church. God, my heart breaks for people who are not here this morning, that I wonder where they're at, God. That I'm concerned even now they might be drifting away from you and going back to their old life. God, use us to pursue those lost sheep. Use us in our love to cover a multitude of sins and turn them back to you, God, as we go after them. God, I pray that people will know when they come here, they will know that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ as they see our love for one another. Make this true among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.